This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Last episode, we heard from Colonel Daryl Whitcomb, and today we'll hear the rest of his story. Whitcomb served in the United States Air Force as an OV-10 forward air controller. He joined the classified Steve Canyon program, Project 404, also known as the Ravens, which operated in secret in Laos. He flew missions over South and North Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. The Air Force had forward air controllers, thousands of them during the war, and the Marine Corps had forward air controllers too. Uh, the difference w- was relatively fundamental. The Marine Corps facts fundamentally worked with the Marine Corps units. They were there to support their ground operations, uh, which meant primarily visual reconnaissance, uh, close air support, those kind of missions. Uh, we Air Force facts, though, we could do it all. We could do everything from working directly like the Marines with specific ground units, and many, many, many guys did that, both with U.S., with Australian, with New Zealand, with Korean, with South Vietnamese units, uh, and with the uh, friendly units in Cambodia and Laos. Or we could go out and we could perform long-range interdiction, reconnaissance in Laos and places like that. Uh, that's the fundamental difference. Our forward air controllers were there as an extension of the theater air component commander who ran the air war in all of its dimensions. Uh, and we, we would go where he wanted us to go to provide that command and control link that he needed to apply air power somewhere in the theater of operations. And in fact, the, the Air Force facts flew throughout Southeast Asia except for the northern part of North Vietnam. The Marine guys, though, they worked almost exclusively with their Marine units. We had at one time, we had two Marine divisions there in South Vietnam, and they worked almost exclusively with those units. So that's the fundamental difference. When, when I was with the Ravens, where we would be based, quote, quote, based in a particular time would change around a little bit depending on what was going on. We had Ravens assigned uh, at one time in all of the various military regions of Laos from north to south. And a lot of times we would be forward uh, located depending on what was going on. And sometimes the airfields would be relatively austere. In fact, I've landed the O-1 a couple times even on roads because the ground units that I needed to get up with and talk to and coordinate with were out in the bush somewhere, and that's where I had to go. We generally lived in certain centralized locations. Uh, I lived uh, for a little bit in Long Chin, which was one of the main airfields up by the Plain of Jars. I spent most of my time living in Vientiane in the morning, then I would go out to the various locations where I was going to work. But uh, we, uh, we saw the country up close and personal. We always had to be concerned, uh, when we were in Laos, we always had to be concerned about security. 
because there was such a strong North Vietnamese uh, element in the country, the forces, North Vietnamese element, and there were also Laotians who were uh, very uh, uh, friendly to them uh, that were our enemy. Uh, and so uh, we had to worry about that. And uh, the airplanes, of course, were very vulnerable. And, and there was more than one occasion when our various locations were attacked by rocket fire and some of our aircraft were destroyed. And so we had to rely upon the indigenous forces, the Laotian Army units or the Hmong uh, field units to provide us with our ground security. When I finished up with the Ravens, I volunteered to go back to the 23rd task and requalify in the OB-10. That was, in fact, about a third tour for me, going back to the squadron. And uh, it was uh, the same process, but in reverse. I had to step away from the O-1, doing everything at 100 knots, back into a more sophisticated aircraft, if you will. Also, I requalified in uh, what we call the Pavenail OV-10, which is uh, those 15 airplanes that we had modified with the laser designators. So I went from uh, binocular-level technology, if you will, right back up to, uh, at that time, which was state-of-the-art uh, laser technology and uh, very sophisticated navigation aids and everything. And so it was, it was an interesting uh, requalification process. Uh, in 1971, the Air Force took 15 of our OV-10s and modified them to what we call the Pavenail configuration. They made basically two changes to the aircraft. First of all, they put on what we call a LORAN, long-range navigational device, which gave it very, very accurate uh, navigational capability. And secondly, they put on board a laser designator, which uh, basically gave us the ability to guide laser-guided weapons. Now, let's jump forward about 20 years to Desert Storm. Remember all the photographs that we saw of the, of the guided weapons going and precisely hitting targets? All that began in Southeast Asia in about 1970, and one of the lead squadrons that was involved in that was the 23rd Task with the pave nails. We had the ability to guide precisely bombs to specific targets using laser technology. I decided at the end of the Raven program to go back to the nails because I purely enjoyed that type of flying, and I felt that that's what young unmarried officers in the Air Force should be doing in a time of combat. Plus, I felt, well, I knew that the squadron, the 23rd task, was filling up with new guys, inexperienced, and they could use my experience. So I chose to volunteer again, go back and requalify in the OV-10 and fly again uh, with the 23rd task. When I went back to the 23rd task in March of 1973, uh, the 23rd was the last fact squadron left in Southeast Asia, and we consolidated all the guys from all the various units. Uh, and we were still flying operations over Cambodia. Uh, when the treaty was signed in Laos and in South Vietnam, we stopped our military operations there. But President Nixon continue, uh, directed us to continue our military operations uh, in Cambodia in support of friendly ground units there. And so we flew with them until Congress cut off funding for that, which was on the 15th of August, 1973. The Ford Air Controllers, uh, as it turned out, were a very viable part. We were that key link between the air and ground if you will, for the air effort that we were expending uh, in that last gasp, that last chapter, if you will, in the war in Southeast Asia. We were the key link in that. The issue of search and rescue is an issue that was very near and dear to our heart. By this last uh, stages of the war, remember 1972 now, when I was over there, we'd been involved over there for nine years. 
the nation was tired of the war. We were certainly tired of the war. And none of us wanted to be the last casualty. Therefore, when one of our buddies would go down, we would stop what we were doing to mount a rescue operation. Uh, this is the way it was. It was just understood. It was the bond that existed between all of us. And the most classic case, I think, of this bond is a, a huge rescue operation that took place in April 1972 when an EB-66, call sign BAT-21, was shot down at the very beginning of the Easter offensive in the northern part of South Vietnam. Uh, when that airplane was blown out of the sky by an SA-2 missile, out of that crew of six, there was only one survivor, the Bravo man, BAT-21 Bravo. He parachuted to the ground, and for the next 17 days, we mounted a huge rescue operation to get first him and then two other Air Force forward air controllers who'd been shot down trying to get him out. Uh, we mounted this huge operation to get all three of those guys out and were successful in two of the cases. In, in the process, though, of executing that SAR in the midst of this huge ground battle, we put in over 800 airstrikes in direct support of that operation. And we had uh, numerous helicopters shot down to include an entire Jolly Green with, with six who were killed, an Army UH-1 shot down with three killed, numerous other helicopters shot up, shot down, shot out of the area before this mess was finally solved by a ground team consisting of a Marine lieutenant colonel, a young Navy SEAL lieutenant, and some Vietnamese commandos who fished two of these guys uh, out of enemy territory. In any search and rescue operation like that, uh, the FAC would provide a key link as what we called the on-scene commander. More often than not, uh, when uh, somebody would go down, the first people on the scene would be a forward air controller. Perhaps it might be a fighter aircraft that you were working on a target that's hit. When that would happen, you would automatically, as the fact, become the on-scene commander to begin to mount that operation, to begin to make it happen, to start marshalling all the rescue forces to get that individual out of there. So uh, the fact was an absolutely key link in this, and generally, you would you would maintain control of the situation until the A1 Sandys came up to take over the actual rescue operation, and then you would back off and be ready to support them anything that they needed for that operation. But uh, the facts were absolutely fundamental to search and rescue operations. When somebody would go down, uh, the FAC could do many things. It would do many things to facilitate a successful SAR. First of all, in many cases, he'd locate the survivor. Absolutely fundamental to running a rescue operation. You had to find out where this guy was so you'd begin to marshal your forces and realize what kind of battle you're going to have to fight to get him out. And then the FAC would do the classic things that he's used to doing. He'd look around for enemy targets. He'd look around to see what the enemy was doing. Uh, he'd begin putting in airstrikes to beat down the enemy threat so we could develop enough situational superiority to allow those very vulnerable rescue helicopters to get in there and pluck that guy out. And he'd make all that stuff happen. During the rescue operation for BAT-21 Bravo, the facts that were working that were up there operating in what the North Vietnamese called this air defense meat grinder that they had built over that. And in that operation, we had two facts, Nail 38 and Covey 282, blown out of the sky by enemy air defenses. And so we were very, very much at risk. And everybody that was up there fighting and flying was being shot at all the time. Well, as the enemy offensive started, the Easter offensive, uh, 
and the enemy started pushing south, they had over the top of them a, a tremendous array of anti-aircraft guns and surface-to-air missiles, and we immediately detected that this was a new chapter in the war, that these guys were coming and they were serious and they were going to defend their ground units, and everybody very rapidly developed a very healthy respect for the, uh, the air defenses in the North Vietnamese. The facts that we're covering, the BAT-21 Bravo rescue operation, had to deal with the SA-2 sites that were active because, after all, the aircraft BAT-21 had been shot down by an SA-2 site. And all the associated guns that were there, plus every enemy tank had at least two machine guns. Uh, every enemy troop had uh, at least an AK-47. Uh, and there was just a tremendous amount of anti-aircraft fire and missile fire directed against those aircraft. It was a very, very dangerous situation. On the second day of the operation, after uh, BAT-21 Bravo had been on the ground about one full day, one of the facts coming on station uh, was from my squadron, NAIL-38, and he'd been on station just a few minutes when, uh, once again, the, uh, the surface-to-air missile or SAM sites went active and began launching missiles at him, and uh, one of the missiles came up and, and literally blew off the tail of his aircraft, and those two guys had to eject. And so now, instead of having one survivor on the ground, we have three and then that night, the alpha man, the pilot, Captain Bill Henderson, was captured by the North Vietnamese, so it reduced the numbers. But then we still had two survivors to deal with, uh, Gene Hamilton, BAT-21 Bravo, and NAIL-38 Bravo, uh, First Lieutenant Mark Clark. Now, as this rescue developed, our commanders in Saigon, of course, were watching the situation very closely, and they had to deal with the question of, whoa, uh, are we paying too high a price for this? And the answer to that was that we will continue to try to get this guy out. We will send in more assets to try to beat down those guns because we're not going to abandon that guy. That was this bond that existed between us. If you go down, we're going to try to get you out. Incidentally, that bond continues to this day, and it's very powerful. And we saw it just last summer in Serbia once again. That bond is still there. But we were going to try to get him out, and over a series of days, we continued to attack those enemy targets, uh, sometimes to the detriment of other things that we were trying to do in the theater, because there's only so many air sorties available. But we continued to attack them and run those helicopters up there, and as dangerous as it was in all of this, there was never a lack of volunteers of either facts to be over the top, A1 guys to go up there and suppress, or a Jolly Greens to go in and try to pick up that guy. That's the power of that bond. As the BAT-21 Bravo SAR continued to develop, finally on about the fourth day, we committed another Jolly Green, Jolly Green 674 pickup. And uh, he was blown out of the sky and crashed and killed six guys. And it became obvious at that point that we had to come up with another avenue of approach. And it was General Abrams himself, the big guy down in Saigon, that said, no more helicopter rescues. But that's the way he said it, no more helicopter rescues. There's all kinds of ways to do all kinds of things. Uh, and when General Abrams said no more helicopter rescues, he did not say no more rescue attempts. And so powers that be in Saigon started looking at other options. And on the next day, the 7th of April, another one of our facts, Covey 282 from the 20th TAS, our sister squadron, was hit by an SA-2 blown out of the sky. 
and the two guys in that aircraft. Uh, uh, First Lieutenant Bruce Walker was the pilot, and in his backseat he had a Marine, a young Marine lieutenant by the name of Larry Fletcher Potts. It was his 25th birthday. He was an artillery observer directing artillery fire off the naval ships off the coast. He was never heard from again. Uh, Walker got on the ground, and now we had three evaders on the ground. So this SAR, this huge SAR that was going on was for these three guys. It was a massive, massive operation. The SA-2 that the North Vietnamese had at that time was a very, very dangerous missile a weapon system for the OV-10. We had on board a radar warning receiver, a little scope, uh, that would tell us when the missiles were going active and firing on us. But the airplane was not that powerful, that maneuverable, and basically the best way to avoid the SA-2s was to stay out of their threat ring. Now, if you had to fly into that area where they could operate, you had to see the missiles. If you could see the missiles, generally you could dive away from them and escape them. But the problem was the SA-2s, by making you break and dive to the ground, would force you down into that environment where all the guns were shooting which just made it twice as dangerous for you. And that was the great threat of the SA-2s. They would force you down into the guns. Even with that threat, with the SA-2 threat, as dangerous as it was, the guys were still flying their missions. We, we knew that it was dangerous, but the missions had to be flown. We took the, uh, the SA-2s very seriously. But again, they were only one of many threats that we had to worry about. And we took uh, solace in the fact that uh, we had good people looking for those sites and attacking those sites and destroying those sites as they, as they could find them. And nobody ever flew into those SA-2 threat rings without giving good, sober thought to what they were doing and assessing the fact that is is what I need to do really worth the risk of going into that? And, and there were times when guys would not go into a threat ring because what they were being asked to do, visually reconnaissance or something, it was not that necessarily important. But something like a SAR, when you've got a buddy down on the ground, yeah, you're going to fly up against those threats. And you're going to do your damnedest to take them out, but you're still going to expose yourself to that threat because that's what you did for your buddies. The facts who flew in the Bat 21 Bravo, Nail 38 Bravo, Cubby 282 Alpha SAR were hanging it out uh, to the extreme. But in SAR situations, that's what you did. The guys knew what they were getting into up there. And generally, they got, well, without exception, the guys who flew those particular missions were the most experienced, the most savvy, the ones who had proven themselves, the coolest under fire, if you will. Uh, they, they could get the most out of what they had to do uh, at the minimum possible risk. When I came into the 23rd TAS, uh, I was immediately drawn to the old guys, if you will, the guys who really knew what they were doing. Now, imagine, if you will, I'm all of 24 years old, and I'm talking about old guys who are 26, 27. But one of the really neat guys in our squadron was a young major by the name of Rick Atchison, okay? Rick uh, is a backseater. He's a navigator, okay? But he's an electronic warfare officer, and he's probably one of the smartest guys tactically that I've ever met. And when the Pavenail program was stood up and created, the commander did a very wise thing. He grabbed a bunch of young, smart, savvy guys like Rick and said, make this system work. And they put their minds into making that system tactically viable and useful. And in fact, it was guys like he who realized that not only is it good for navigation, is it good for uh, guiding laser-guided weapons, but it also has some applicability in, in the realm of SAR because we can use this to precisely locate somebody very quickly. 
And he and some of the other, quote, older guys made it a very effective system in search and rescue to the point that when a SAR would occur, one of the first things that the people in Saigon would do is call for the pave nails. And so Rick got to fly in some probably the most dangerous, savage missions of that time period because he was so smart. And there are guys that are free men today because of the efforts of guys like Rick Atchison. Uh, the pave nail guys, when they would fly a specific SAR, would go in and they would use the laser system to zot, if you will, hit the, la- the uh, survivor with a laser beam, and then uh, the Loran would figure out the exact coordinates of that individual so we knew exactly where he was, and we could do a lot of pl- tactical planning around that. Plus, having him over the top, he had all the other capabilities of a regular FAC, all the radios, the target marking capability, but he also had the ability, as he saw targets appear, to engage them with laser-guided weapons, uh, laser-guided bombs, and a very, very effective system. So they, they, it was a perfect melding, if you will, of technology for a specific SAR uh, mission. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present, If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. The uh, BAT-21 uh, Bravo, NAIL-38 Bravo, SAR continued on, Cubby-282. Uh, after the uh, General Abrams decided that there would be no more helicopter rescue attempts, he did not rule out allowing some type of special operations uh, operation to go in there. And we had an outfit in, down in Saigon called SOG, Studies and Observations Group. Uh, within that, there was a very quiet little organization called Bright Light under the command of a lieutenant colonel, Marine lieutenant colonel by the name of Andy Anderson. And he watched this mission and he watched these failed rescue attempts. And as he analyzed the mission, he decided that he thought he could get a ground team in there, a small element, and rescue these guys using a little river that ran through the middle of this operational area. So he pitched that plan uh, to the decision makers there in Saigon, the generals, and they told him to have at it. And he came up there with his team. His lead man, if you will, was a young Navy lieutenant by the name of Tommy Norris, a Navy SEAL. And over a period of, of three nights, was able to get in and recover that 2-1 Bravo, Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton, and uh, First Lieutenant Mark Clark. 
He then intended to reposition and get in and pick up uh, Covey 282 Alpha, Lieutenant Walker, who was further to the north and behind many more enemy troops. But in the process, uh, before he could get in and get Walker to a recovery point, Walker was discovered by uh, enemy troops and, and killed in the field. I think that in the Batu-1 Bravo rescue, I think the facts played a very, very key role because they were that constant presence. They were our connection, if you will, to those survivors all the time. When we uh, finally came up with a plan of sending in the small ground recovery team to get those guys out, we had to move the survivors. And the way we moved those survivors was through a series of messages that was relayed to those survivors by the facts overhead. One of the main guys was a young captain by the name of Harold Icky. Intelligence worked back through the backgrounds of these various survivors and was able to determine information that only they would understand. And then we passed these messages to them. They understood it. And then they were able, uh, in those two instances, to move on to the the recovery point. Now, the third guy, uh, Bruce Walker... We literally dropped him a kit, what we call a Madden kit, full of food and radios and water and maps and, and directions uh, on where to go, and that's how we were attempting to, to make the recovery with him. I, I do not feel personally that we could have recovered uh, uh, Bat-21 Bravo and Nail-38 Bravo without the key role the facts played because they were that constant presence, they were that constant contact that we maintained with those survivors to facilitate that rescue. Uh, I've discussed this with uh, the Navy SEAL, Tommy Norris. He talks about how important it was having that fact over him all of the time as literally his lifeline. The airborne facts go back, oh, there was probably a little bit of that going on in World War I, uh, but really, it started to become formalized in World War II, primarily in Europe, when we realized that with our uh, fast-moving armored formations, we wanted to be able to tie the fighter bombers, uh, the uh, P-47s primarily, with those armored units. So we started putting facts uh, both at the front of those columns in jeeps with radios and, all in, in, and also in small Piper Cub-type airplanes to talk to the ground and also talk to the fighter bombers ahead. Uh, that was really the beginning of the formalization of this process. And then we saw it continue to develop in Korea, where we began to have squadrons of forward air controllers, and they were called mosquitoes, T-6s. And we realized that we could do more with them than just tie them to ground units. We could stretch them out beyond the forward line of troops and attack enemy units uh, behind that. And then in Southeast Asia, we took that uh, one more iteration further. And in, in, in Southeast Asia, we had facts over the entire uh, theater, with the exception of up around in the, the northern part of, of North Vietnam. But facts were ubiquitous to the war from the absolute north to the south. Korea was a, a key moment in the development of the concept of the airborne forward air controller because we saw such a quantum leap in the performance of, of aircraft between World War II and that conflict. So the FAC up there, the airborne FAC, an extension of the theater Air Force commander who was running the overall air war, his command and control extension, but more importantly, a link between those fast-moving fighter bombers coming in with their ordnance to deliver uh, at very high speed, uh, covering ground very quickly, very hard for them to get oriented on what was going on below them and sort it all out, plus uh, generally very little playtime that they could stick around because they burned gas very, very rapidly. So that fact was there to help them get very quickly organized, 
point them out to the target, tell them where not to drop the ordinance if there are friendlies around, tell them what the threat is, get them in and get them out, and allow us to concentrate and focus our air power very quickly to very dramatically affect a particular ground battle. In the war in Southeast Asia, there were many things that really necessitated having a very, very large FAC uh, organization. And at one time, we had a total of five squadrons organized with hundreds and hundreds of FACs. In fact, I would argue that probably the most common or most ubiquitous assignment for the Air Force guys throughout the war in Southeast Asia were the FAC assignments, and they ranged far and wide. They were that extension of the air commander uh, of air power in in any capability, Uh, and uh, they were that command and control element that he used to apply air power anywhere in the theater. Now, the war... Uh, is sometimes it's called the Vietnam War, but that's really a misnomer. It was a conflict throughout Southeast Asia, and the common factor that we applied throughout the theater was air power, and the facts were the link of that force from above to down below to make it a truly three-dimensional force. As a young fact. One day I would go into northern Laos. The next day I'd go onto the Ho Chi Minh Trail. The next day I would fly into South Vietnam and work along the DMZ. I worked everywhere from northern Laos to southern Cambodia, and it was basically the same mission, just slightly different variables depending on where you were working. But that was the common thread. The facts were the common thread of air power in the war in Southeast Asia. After the war in Southeast Asia, we uh, we brought some of the FAC units back to the states, and they continued to operate, initially with O2s, and then we got rid of those. Uh, we gave them what OV-10s we had left, and then for a while they were flying some OA-37s, uh, and ultimately uh, were given the uh, the A-10 or the OA-10 variant of that. But as as we moved into the Cold War era, we did some sober analysis on our FAC requirements and realized that the way we had FAC in Southeast Asia would no longer be viable in the threat array that we expected to see in, uh, in, say, a NATO war in Europe in the 1980s. The FACs just would not have survived. So we began to put the emphasis on the ground facts and those airborne facts that we still had, our plan was to hold them back behind the line of contact, basically as facilitators, coordinators to move the air forward uh, into the big battles. In Desert Storm, the Marines deployed two squadrons of OV-10s over there. Uh, they lost two aircraft that were shot down and realized what we had realized in the 1980s, that those airplanes would be just too vulnerable in a high-threat arena. Uh, the Marine Corps had decided to take uh, several of the old Air Force OV-10A models that we used to fly and upgrade them, or what they call slept them, to the D variety with some special devices on board. But their analysis post-Desert Storm realized, made them realize that it was not worth it. And instead of modifying those aircraft, they just saved the money and deactivated their units, and the OV-10s went away. Now, there are still some operating. Venezuela uses them, and recently we gave some to Colombia, and they're using them down there in the drug war. So they are operating, but no, no longer in, in the United States. Desert Storm was, I think, a watershed because we, we realized that the threat array now of massed radars, massed anti-aircraft guns is such that one can no longer loiter over the battlefield as we did at 140 knots. It, uh, it, modern warfare just precludes us from doing that anymore. Now, there may be certain arenas 
maybe in South America, places like that, where that would still be viable. We saw this too in the in the in the Falklands War in 1980s with the British and the Argentinians. The Argies had a an aircraft called Pucara, which is similar to the OV-10, and it was effective uh, against the British in the low arena, but they paid a high price doing it. That was Colonel Daryl Whitcomb. If you'd like to know more about Colonel Whitcomb, check out his book, The Rescue of Bat 2-1. The link is in the show description. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Coming up on 5-Minute News. I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.